I remember when The Simpsons first started back in the 90s. It was like 1990. One of the characters that was introduced in the very first episode was Ned Flanders. Now, the thing that's important to remember about The Simpsons back in the 90s is they were supposed to be like the iconic middle-class family, right? Not, do, not doing horribly, but always kind of struggling, especially financially. And their neighbor, Ned, was supposed to be, you know, the, the family that was always doing really well. Um, very comfortable, never having to struggle. And then we learn an episode or two later that Ned is a very devout uh, Christian, um, which often kind of points to why he is able to do so well. Blessed, he might say. It's very much the prosperity gospel kind of imagery. If you, if you pray hard, if you read your Bible every day, if you actually worship God, then God will reward you by giving you a great income and smooth sailing lifestyles. And then uh, a few years later in one episode, a hurricane comes through Springfield and pretty much spares everything and everyone except the Flanders home. It is utterly and completely destroyed. And so that night, he and his family uh, spend the night down in the church basement. And as his family uh, is sleeping, he goes upstairs to the sanctuary and he prays and he says, I don't understand it, Lord. I have done everything the Bible says. I even do the stuff that contradicts the other stuff. It's, it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> then in one episode, um, we, we see that his faith is uh, tried once again um, when his wife dies very suddenly. And, and again, it's not just, you know, I do the Bible. Um, he questions everything because he is learning and we are learning as the story goes on, as the episodes go on. Ned has a very simplistic view, of course, not only of Scripture, but of God, this kind of cause and effect. If I do this, then God will give me this. But, of course, the question arises, what is Ned supposed to do? And therefore, what are we supposed to do when our Bible, when our God is not big enough for what happens in life? And I talked about this a little bit last week in uh, the other services when we introduced this series, BUMC. So we said last week that as United Methodists, we believe in God. But what does that mean? What, what does it mean to believe in God? And who is this God that we are believing in? Scripture is kind of the same. How do we believe in Scripture? And what is this thing that we call the Bible? What is the Bible that we say we believe in as United Methodists? If you go on the denominations website, umc.org, they kind of paraphrase what we have in our book of discipline, both from the Methodist Church and from Evangelical United Brethren, which, of course, came together in 1968 to create the denomination we call the United Methodist Church. And so they kind of summarize uh, sort of the doctrine of faith that comes from our book of discipline. So on the website, it reads, we say that God speaks to us through the Bible and that it contains all things necessary for salvation. This authority derives from three sources. We hold that the writers of the Bible were inspired by God, that they were filled with God's spirit as they wrote the truth to the best of their knowledge. And we hold that God was at work in the process of canonization, which during which only the most faithful and useful books were adopted as scripture. We hold that the Holy Spirit works today in our thoughtful study of the scriptures, especially as we study them together, seeking to relate the old words to life's 
present realities. So again, you can find that on the United Methodist Church website, but you can also go through kind of the beginning of the Book of Discipline, which has not only our policies and procedures, our rules, but also has these um, classic doctrines of faith, which of course are part of our heritage as United Methodists. Another part of our heritage when it comes to Scripture is that as United Methodists, um, we go through Scripture um, through sort of a, a filtering process, and this is called the quadrilateral. Um, this was given by a Duke professor and United Methodist theologian, Albert Outler. Um, and he talks about how, as, as Scripture is primary, there are three uh, pieces, very fundamental, in which we encounter Scripture. Sometimes it's painted like a stool, so Scripture is what you sit on, and these three pieces are legs. I kind of think of it more as either a filter or maybe even a kaleidoscope. So as we read scripture, as we practice it, we do so through three ways, reason, tradition, and experience. So we don't just read scripture, or to put it another way, we read and we practice very intently. We live this out, we embody it, it becomes a part of our lives, and we take in this scripture by reason, which of course is the ability to ask questions. So we don't just take for granted the words that we are reading or the words that are presented to us, we allow the opportunity to ask why. What does this mean? How, how is this happening? How did it happen back then? Why is it important to us now? All of those questions are incredibly important for us as United Methodists. We also bring our tradition. And we bring tradition whether we are aware of it or not. And we bring tradition whether we are proud of it or not. The tradition of the Methodist Church, of course, has not always been a proud one. There have been splinters and schisms before. One of the most notable in the Methodist Church was a little bit before the Civil War started. And because of issues of racism and slavery, the, United, the Methodist Church became the Methodist Church and the Methodist Church South. It was only a mere 60-some years ago, 62 years, that uh, women were able to be fully ordained as clergy in the Methodist Church. There's, of course, a lot for us to celebrate, and we mention that all the time. But part of our tradition is also remembering those things we might rather want to forget. The 2019 special session of our general conference was fully recorded, accessible all the time, uh, whether we want it or not, so that we will always be able to go back and see not only what happened, but how it happened. And how we treated each other. This is part of our tradition that we come to when we read and encounter scripture. Lastly, we read scripture through our experience, our various experience. There are things that you have gone through that few others have and maybe no one else. You see things the rest of us don't see. You hear things. The rest of us don't hear. It's one of the reasons that John Wesley felt that uh, small groups were so important. Because when we come together, it's not just to agree with each other. It's to bring our distinctiveness, our individuality, so that it can be experienced by the rest of the group, the rest of the community. It's why we encounter so rich and so complex an experience like scripture, that it's not just a book that we are reading. It's a relationship 
that we are building. And that's why it's so important to remember that the Bible is much, much more than just an instruction manual. Now, to be clear and to be fair, there's there's a part of that. It is a part of that. In fact, Paul writes about this several times in this uh, passage of 2 Timothy that we are reading, but also some others. In verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes, or a student writes, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And there are some other of these letters that we have access to. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it identifies the purpose of Scripture as for instruction. In Romans 15, it indicates that the use for Scripture is not just for instruction, but also for emboldening us in hope. So part of it is that it is to teach us, it is to guide us, it is to strengthen us. But it's important to remember that that's not all the Bible is or what it's for. In fact, in the beginning of this chapter of 2 Timothy uh, 3, the writer is instructing the student and, of course, all of us, all who read it, to say that there are folks who say that they cling to Scripture, but it's not really Scripture that they cling to. Um, In fact, and these folks are lovers of all things. Uh, things that are healthy and things that are not so healthy. But then the writer writes, in all of this, they are just holding on to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. And I found myself reading that sentence, that verse, over and over again. Holding on to the godliness, but forgetting its power. And I wonder if that's part of what happens when we just hold on to the instruction of scripture but not the power of scripture does the power of scripture when we encounter it does it speak to the challenges of our life does it speak to how god is present maybe in the midst of shadow maybe in the midst of silence maybe in the midst when we feel as though we are alone and disconnected Some of you might remember a while back we did a sermon series that looked at um, supposed quotes of the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible. Quotes like, God helps helps those who help themselves. Um, Everything happens for a reason. God needed another angel. Not only are those quotes not in Scripture, but many times when we try to quote Scripture in that way, Um, for many reasons, but one of them is just to fill the silence and to try to help this person who feels so helpless. Not only does it um, wrongly put up an image of Scripture, but it could actually turn that person who is in pain off from what's actually in the Bible that might actually be able to help them. A more helpful approach might be to ask, how is God in this moment? How is God in the complex? How is God in the messiness? How is God in the heartbreak? Where and how does the Bible talk about that? And so as I mentioned before, um, with a a disciple Bible study, for example, uh, when I was a layperson in college, I went through disciple one, two, three, and four 
and it was a fantastic experience. I had not ever really read, at least on the whole, the Bible in such a way that I, that I encountered it every single day. And some days it just felt normal because I was actually studying it. I was actually in conversation and relationship, examining it and asking questions, why and what does this mean? And in that normality, I found something extraordinary. This, this consistency, this continuing relationship, whether, and if I, whether I understood it at the time or not, to realize that it was there, and it actually always had been there. I was just now discovering it. And so we want to share with you someone who had kind of a similar experience, but also a very different one, very profound one. Many of you know Keith Warren. Uh, he, is, uh, he and his family are part of our church, and um, we, we want to give you an opportunity for him to share his story, not just encountering disciple, but also what it meant when the Bible came alive for him. Let's take a watch. So my favorite Bible verse would be in Matthew 25, and I, I can paraphrase, I can't, I can't quote it verbatim, but the, the part where he says, what you've done to the least of, of my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. And I, I, I kind of live by that as much as possible, and that's what guides me in things like when I get involved in missions and things like that. I really feel like we do need to help people that are marginalized in our society and, and don't or haven't felt the love of Jesus and those people are the ones that we really need to reach out to. So that is one area or one of the passages that really did change my life. And that's one of the ones that you do apply to real-world things. Um, I find it uh, it helps me in my decision-making and some of the things that Jesus is talking about, whether it's, you know, whether you apply it to our government or our political system or how you treat others. Uh, a lot of those things have really touched me for sure. I've been attending here for uh, about eight years now. I've been a member of the church. And uh, my wife and I took a lot of classes early on, but one of the ones we took was the Disciple Bible class. You know, it was a pretty intensive uh, study of the Bible. Uh, we're very glad that we took it. Otherwise, I'm not sure I would have uh, been able to find the time to actually read that much of the Bible on my own. It's, it's nice to have a nice structured class that kind of gives you these assignments and readings to do. You, you, you will get so much more from that class and discussing the things with your peers than you would ever reading the Bible on your own or just listening to the, the passages during a sermon. But I found myself being able to use Scripture and apply it to life, and I found myself quoting Scripture a lot more. Uh, you can actually go back on my social media and see where I would quote things from the Bible. Or, and usually it was things we had learned or talked about that week, but they, it carried with me. And one of the other great things I find is when we're uh, listening to a sermon or whatever, and the... Uh, the pastor brings up one of the passages that we had studied during class. You know, I remember everything that we talked about it, and it's great because I know exactly what he's talking about, he or she is talking about uh, during, the, uh, during the sermon. I, w- I would just say I, I think that attending either the, the Disciple Bible class or any of the other classes that, that we offer here at the church is very important because I feel like it, it builds that community, that sense of community. But I think you're also um, missing out if you don't participate in those things. Uh, you know, worship is just really one small part of the community and the experience of, of being a part of the church. And uh, it's very important to participate in those things. You, you know, you meet new people, you learn new things. You really go further and further and deeper and deeper into that journey. 
you know, just showing up for church every Sunday is great, but but without those other things, I, I feel like you you know you may not may not build as deep a relationship as you could without participating in those things, and that goes for missions as well and all all the aspects of of serving the community and the church. So again, part of that power that Keith lifts up is not just his own individual study, but doing that in the midst of community. Um, and in that, the encounter of Scripture becomes much more rich uh, because we go through it together. And so as Paul's letters and other letters and books do speak to some of these challenges and some of these heartbreaks, and this, as this is happening in terms of the New Testament, we, we see all of these letters, but then we also start to see that the letters are not enough. Eventually, the people needed something more. And they needed to remember. Because in the midst of the challenge and the heartbreak they were going through, they needed to remember not just who Jesus is and was as a resurrected Lord. They also needed to remember who Jesus was as a person, the incarnation of God here on earth. They needed to remember the story. And so decades later, after Paul's letters we encounter and receive the Gospels. I've been going to our chapel a lot lately, like a lot, a lot, uh, pretty much every day when I'm here on campus. And uh, I'll just sit down, and sometimes I'll intentionally pray or I'll read. Most times I just kind of look at the stained glass windows. And I just look at the imagery that captures the story. And if you look at the one wall, in fact, it's the one that's closest to us right now. On that side are uh, many of the stories from Luke, and they're the stories of the lost. And so there's a, a painting of the lost sheep and Jesus picking that lost sheep up, which is a story that reminds me about how we are seen when we feel like we are seen by no one. And then there's the portrait of the prodigal son being welcomed by his father, giving him a second chance. And I had not noticed this until just a few days ago, but up in the corner is a teeny tiny portrait of the elder brother sitting there with his working shovel, looking very um, ticked off because his dad broke the rules. And sometimes I wonder, which am I? And there's the portrait of the Good Samaritan, which is a story that reminds us that God's love oftentimes breaks the law. And then there's finally the story of um, the sower that shows us what it means for God to be generous, that the sower puts seed anywhere and everywhere, whether we think it's deserving or not. Iconography speaks to the study of pictures and images and symbols and how meaningful that they are to us. One of the reasons this is so important is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, so many people were uneducated and unable to read that they did not have access to the, the scripture in terms of words. But they still crave the stories. And so when we look at these um, iconic images, we're able to actually maybe experience the story for the first time or we know the story. And those images remind us of the entire experience and it comes rushing back to us all in the midst of one image. It's why I personally think that comic books are so important in our culture, 
because right now these are the modern iconic images that help connect us to the extraordinary, to how these extraordinary characters are real and present in the midst of the difficulties and the hardships that we go through. Some of you may have seen the new Thor movie, uh, Thor Love and Thunder. A lot of that movie is based on um, the writer Jason Aaron's uh, version of the Thor series. Jason Aaron, um, in, his very, in the very last issue that he wrote of Thor, writes in the uh, acknowledgments that he is an atheist. But he said his time on Thor, this god of thunder, helped sort of reshape how he saw God whether God was real or not. And he said, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but spending time in this story kind of helped me to see that maybe there is something there. And throughout the last part of the story series, the big arc that he did, there was this question that Thor kept asking. What is the spirit of thunder? Or what is the power of thunder? And so in the very last issue, there's a family sitting by the fire and it starts to rain and this huge bolt of lightning comes across the sky and it thunders. And and one of the boys who's very scared says, what is that? And the father said, that's okay. You're safe. That's our God showing that he is with us and that he loves us. And you may not be able to see it up, but Jason Aaron says in that first panel, the spirit of thunder, the power of thunder is to be heard. And the father says to his children, let me tell you the story. And the very last word that Jason Aaron writes is amen. The Bible can be instruction, but it is so much more. Because the reality is, when we actually come to it in need and we are open, It is what we need it to be in that moment. And it's what we need it to be the moment after that and the moment after that and the moment after that. As long as we keep that relationship open, that's why it's a living document. And there is power in that. In my studies this last week, I came across a statement um, that I've thought about over and over and over again. The person who wrote it writes, the Bible needs a warning to those who read it. And the warning is this. It is so true that it will read you. This is what it means to encounter scripture. So as we go, let us remember what has happened. What has happened in this time of worship, what has happened as we have come to the table in the breaking of the bread, in the pouring of the cup, you are now part of the story. But see, here's the thing. We have always been a part of the story. That's the beauty of the Bible being a living document, is that it shows us that these words that have existed for thousands of years only encompass and encapture something that has existed much, much longer. But we are all a part of This is what happens not only when we come to the table, but any time we encounter scripture, we encounter words that go beyond time and go beyond space, that go beyond us, but yet at the same time still invites us. And that's why Jesus calls us 
to discipleship and to invite others to be a part of the story. So as we go, know that your story is a story that needs to be heard because it is part of God's story. And let us invite the stories of others along the way. May we go in peace. Amen.